Welcome to the Macomb Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners to what's happening in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, and as you can see, we've brought you another longer episode this week. Uh, this is actually a recording of a class that uh, Elon Levy, who's a uh, journalist and writer and translator, presented to a Ramon group. And uh, I'll put a link back to explain what Ramon was, if those who don't know. And we invited Elon to speak to a group of college students about why the Israel conversation takes the tones that it does around the world in journalism and on social media and governments. Um, this is before the current crisis uh, with Hamas and the riots around Israel. But we thought it gave a good uh, depth of context for even before those incidents occurred, why that conversation often gets misrepresented and distorted, and even in theory what we could do about it. I hope you find it as enlightening as we did. Enjoy. Uh, you will notice that we hit the record button a minute after he started, and we jumped right in. And so that's where we're leaving you, right at the beginning of this lecture on the Israel conversation around the world by Elon Levy. Conversation that seems to uh, exist around this specific country of Israel, the idea of having uh, a conversation around Israel, a relationship with Israel. I want to show you the results of a very unscientific study that I did today, uh, taking the title of this subject and comparing it to other countries uh, around the world that have a very similar population size to Israel. Uh, so, for example, if you Google conversation about Serbia, 882 uh, results pop up on Google. If you look for the conversation about Austria, which also has a similar population to Israel, uh, just over 2,000, the conversation about Switzerland, also a similar size population to Israel, 3,420. And if you Google conversation about Israel, you get 312,000 results, which is very close to the conversation about China, and Israel's population is famously less than a rounding error on the Chinese census because they have well over uh, uh, one and a half billion people. Uh, we are about nine million people. So Israel is less than a rounding error of the population growth of China in an average year. Uh, and add to that that China is the biggest uh, geopolitical and security threat to face the Western free world in the coming century. And it really is remarkable that the conversation about Israel uh, manages to attract so much attention, manages to engross people so much. And what I want to do uh, in this conversation that we're having today, this conversation about the conversation about Israel, is to try to understand why it interests people so much, what it is they're talking about, what it is that we're talking about as well when we talk about Israel, and why it's so different from other countries. Uh, as Benji mentioned, I'm a translator by, by trade. I translate uh, Hebrew nonfiction into uh, English, so mostly books about politics, history, etc. And so I'm very fortunate in my line of work that Jews like writing books about themselves. I mean, we Jews really do talk a lot about ourselves. Unfortunately, the people in the West uh, are also interested in hearing about, reading about Jews and reading about Israel. And that's something that interests them. Uh, Benji mentioned I translated uh, Mifa Goodman's Catch 67, uh, which is a book not about the Israeli-Palestinian con uh, conflict, but about the Israeli conversation about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, about where the arguments come from within Israeli society. I strongly recommend that book for anyone who wants to understand the, the ideological argument uh, inside uh, Israel. Uh, so if there's one thing we can, uh, we can establish is that Israel 
interest people, both Jews and non-Jews, disproportionately, uh, completely out of whack and out of proportion to anything else in the world, as we can see from this very unscientific uh, study. Um, so there were actually two conversations uh, going on that I want to unpack. One is the Jewish conversation about Israel, uh, the conversation that Jewish communities have, particularly in the uh, diaspora, uh, about Israel, uh, because Israelis are obviously talking about Israel all the time, but those are very different conversations, and we can, we can unpack why that is. Uh, and then the, the non-Jewish uh, conversation about Israel, and I want to start with that, because I think that we would be missing the wood for the trees if we tried to focus on our internal Jewish conversation about Israel without realizing how much Israel actually interests um, many other people for reasons that have nothing to do with us, and in many cases, nothing to do with Israel whatsoever. So if we have any art historian buffs in the audience, does anyone want to hazard a guess what these statues are, where they're from, don't be spooked if you have absolutely no idea. There's absolutely no reason you should know. Anyone have any ideas? Throw it in the chat. No? These are uh, a collection of 28 statues called the Kings of Judah uh, from King David going all the way uh, to the last king of Judah during the Babylonian uh, destruction of the temple. Uh, and they are located in Paris on the western facade of the Notre Dame Cathedral, uh, the cathedral that burnt down uh, recently. They had a terrible fire uh, built in the 12th century. On the front, uh, on the facade, 28 Jews, uh, statues of uh, Jewish kings. Now, that's quite curious. Why in medieval France are they building 28 statues uh, of, uh, of uh, Jews. Now, you might understand why they would have uh, other statues, maybe of Jesus or all of his other apostles who were also Jews. But, but what did David and all the other kings, Josiah and Hezekiah and Zedekiah and all the other kings, uh, have to do with medieval France? Um, nothing immediately religious, because these weren't really religious figures. But then you learn something very interesting uh, about the history, which is that the French kings started having themselves anointed with holy oil during their coronation ceremonies, copy-pasting that tradition out of the Bible. They took the biblical idea of the divine right of kings, that the kings are, are given a right by God in order to rule, copied it to France and claimed that that was where they got their uh, authority from. In fact, they claimed to have direct descent from King David and from the Davidic line. And that was something that strengthened their own claim to the throne. So even a thousand years ago in France, in a language that was sort of some sort of hybrid of old French and, and, and Latin and French at the time, there is a conversation that is happening about Israel, but it's a conversation that's happening about ancient Israel. And the French kings are already reading themselves into this ancient story, and they're reading this ancient story into themselves. It's got nothing to do with the real country called Israel, as you can see from these very white, very European-looking statues. It's got nothing to do with the real Israel. It's got nothing to do with the Jews. This is a conversation that the French are having about themselves and reading their own stories into the Bible. Um, here is a uh, hymn written by William Blake, uh, an English poet in uh, the early 1800s. It's called Jerusalem. Well, that, that's the unofficial uh, title given to it. And it is essentially the unofficial national anthem of England, Jerusalem. 
there's God Save the Queen. Obviously, that's the national anthem of the United Kingdom. But when England and Scotland play uh, football or rugby against each other, they have their own national anthems. Uh, and English football players or rugby players will stand up and sing this song. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? This is like a dating a myth about uh, Jesus visiting Glastonbury. Don't ask. Anyway, and did the countenance divine, that's God, shine upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. Amazing. The British will still deny that, that Jerusalem is Israel's capital, but the unofficial national anthem of England is Jerusalem. Um, and when, you know, after the... Second World War, the Labour government wanted to have a big rebuilding project in uh, England. They spoke of having a new Jerusalem. And you can still hear English people talking about Jerusalem, not as the real place, but as a concept. Jerusalem has been some sort of heavenly city, some sort of perfect city. It's got nothing to do with Jerusalem in the real world, as you'll know if you've ever visited Jerusalem, love it as I do. Um, but it was a concept, right? They had their, their own idea of building this sort of heavenly God city, um, in uh, England's uh, green and uh, pleasant land. Um, so what's going on here? Um, if you continue having a look, you know, through political philosophy, historians would refer to the ancient Hebrew kingdoms and ancient ideals in the Bible in trying to understand their own countries. Uh, Thomas Hobbes, uh, the, the English political philosopher, used the Bible and the argument of uh, the gods giving the kings the power to, to reign in order to explain uh, what he understood as, you know, the need to have one central power uh, government. You had uh, John Stuart Mill, for example, the, the, the famous liberal philosopher, um, writing about how the Jews were sort of on the, the vanguards of progress. Everyone reads their own stories into Israel, into the stories of the Jews. And the reason I've gone through this tangent, Benji said, take it wherever you want. So I decided to go via you know, a really long tangent is to show that the conversation about Israel is so much older than modern Israel and the symbols in Israel, in whether it's the, the idea of, you know, the, the return to Zion or the exile or a new Jerusalem. These are ideas that have been part of the Western conversation, part of Western discourse for centuries. And I think it would be crazy to expect that suddenly when after 2000 years, the Jews get their act together and build their own uh, modern nation state in the land of Israel, that the conversation about what is going there should suddenly be completely disconnected from the fact that the world has been, uh, I'll say, obsessed, to put it mildly, about uh, the idea of Israel and, uh, and what it represents. Um, so I want to show you one example, uh, a much more recent example, of an argument that took place in a Western country about Israel, specifically uh, Britain. And I want to unpack with you what the argument was, and what it's really telling you about Britain as opposed to telling you about Israel, because this is this is a conversation that, that, that the British are having. OK, it was about what's called the IRA working definition of anti-Semitism. IRA is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. If you walk up to a British Jew and ask them, what is the IRA working definition of anti-Semitism? They will tell you. They'll tell you because this was all 
over the front pages of the British newspapers when in 2019, the Labour Party, controlled by the far-left Jeremy Corbyn, uh, basically decided to wage all-out war on the Jewish community in Britain over the definition of anti-Semitism, okay? Ask an Israeli what is the IRA working definition of anti-Semitism, they wouldn't have a clue. It's not on their radar. It's just not on the radar. Um, so, uh, but, but in Britain it was. And in Britain it was a real uh, issue that I think made the Jewish community there feel very uncomfortable. They were having to be very vocal, weren't always very happy with the attention. I'll show you in just a little bit um, where, where that spilled um, and, and what, this, uh, what this argument was actually about. Um, there's a blacked out rectangle on your screen. Or maybe that's because that's where I can see you. Is that better? Is that better? Is the black out? Is it dis oh. it's disappeared? Uh, okay, so um, no, now, so th so this now there's like a square in the middle. Oh, now it's disappeared. Okay. Okay. Um, so, so this is the this is the working definition of anti-Semitism that's been adopted by lots of governments, local authorities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it says this. Okay, it starts with a very vague definition, but it. Where it gets interesting is when we get into the details. Anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed toward Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and or their property toward Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. So far, nothing particularly controversial, right? Anti-Semitism is a kind of perception of Jews, which might be a hatred of Jews. Nothing particularly controversial there. Where it gets controversial is the examples that the definition mentions of things that could, in context, count as anti-Semitic, okay? And about half of them have to do with Israel, okay? Because, um, you know, some of them are like saying Jews have long noses or borrowing, you know, saying the Jews control the world, that sort of classic anti-Semitism. But half of the examples that are listed here are actually about uh, Israel, and this is why it was so controversial in the UK. So, for example, accusing the Jews as a people or Israel as a state of inventing or exaggerating the Holocaust. Accusing Jews, Jewish citizens of being more loyal to Israel or to the priorities of Jews worldwide than to their own uh, nations. Denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination, for example, by claiming that the existence of Israel is a racist endeavor. Double standards, the images of uh, classical anti-Semitism uh, to characterize Israel, comparing Israel to the Nazis and holding Jews collectively responsible uh, for the actions of the uh, of the state of Israel. Now, here is where it fed into the British conversation about Israel, because in uh, 2015, I think it was, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, who had been a fringe element in the British Labour Party, I mean, a really fringe element, who sat on the back benches, no one ever expected would become a leader of the Labour Party. He threw his hat in the ring, shocked everyone by becoming leader of the Labour Party, um, decided that he didn't want to adopt the international definition of uh, anti-Semitism. Why? Because he was afraid that it would uh, narrow or unfairly restrict debate about Israel. He came from the far left fringe of the Labour Party, the very strongly, not just pro-Palestinian, but resolutely anti-Israel uh, socialist fringe of the Labour Party. And for the whole summer, there were embarrassing headlines like this. I mean, just imagine how embarrassing it would be if, if you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post were to run head 
articles about like non-Jews arguing about Jews and definitions of Jews and what you're allowed to say about Jews. So this is what was happening in the UK, right? Corbyn, chief rabbi, was wrong. Corbyn struggles to rebuff anti-Semitism accusations. Corbyn refuses to apologize to the Jews. Torn apart in TV skewering, Corbyn refuses four times to apologize over anti-Semitism. So this is something that's making the news in the UK. Now, what is he? What, what is the British far left opposing? Um, they are defending particular claims within this definition of anti-Semitism, saying actually we don't want um, we want to be able to have a conversation about Israel without being accused of anti-Semitism. So. Um, you know, actually to reserve the right to, to, to compare uh, Israeli policy um, to the Nazis, something that's obviously uh, completely uh, ridiculous. Uh, but when you consider, for example, Britain's own story about itself, how the Nazis are, you know, the archetype of evil, you can see how when people want to say things are evil and they want to you know, have a conversation about themselves, about how we're standing up to evil, the Nazis become the symbol of evil. And if they hate Israel, then Israel slots, um, then Israel slots into that. Uh, of particular interest, you know, denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination by claiming that the, the existence of the state of Israel is a racist endeavor. Uh, the far left in Britain wanted to be able to claim, actually, no, Israel is racist. Israel is, by definition, um, uh, racist. And, and you had now, you know, whether or not you agree with that claim, I think it's fascinating that, that the British press was preoccupied for a whole summer with this argument about, you know, pardon me, going having arguments amongst themselves about how you can talk about Israel, what that conversation uh, about Israel is about, uh, what you're allowed, uh, what you're allowed to say. And I think you can see from these headlines that, you know, this... It's not just a side issue that so much more is going on behind the scenes and the way that this conversation about Israel is, is feeding into it. So, you know, the Daily Express there on the left has got, uh, um, you know, Labour leader refuses four times to apologize for failure to tackle anti-Semitism. And they're spinning it about, you know, is this a political disaster for the Labour Party? Um, you see headlines, you know, Corbyn, chief rabbi, was wrong, directly setting up that clash between Corbyn, the Jewish community, um, clearly the idea that this is something salacious that's going to sell, um, that's, that's going to sell uh, papers. You can see, for example, in the Daily Mail article, first they talk about failure to apologize anti-Semitism, but then they're going on and they're talking about other things, right? Women's pensions, tax rises, and it all seems to add up. Uh, to this uh, conversation that they're having about Israel that, that is being used to feed something else. You can see both from the perspective of the far left and from the perspective of, of the rest of society, the conversation about Israel feeds into something greater. Uh, for the left, the conversation about Israel was like a litmus test of what are we allowed to say in the case of um, freedom of speech, for example, was, was, uh, was, how, they might, uh, was how they might put it. Um, or, you know, the ability to stand up to when they are thinking about Israel, they're not thinking about, you know, this real country that exists, and obviously it exists. They're thinking about it as a symbol. And so I think it's interesting that we, you know, showed, we started with the examples of um, Notre Dame Cathedral and William Blake's poem, that we still have Israel very much being a symbol um, rather than 
rather than a deliberate place, uh, than, than a specific place. And, and, and we see that from the way that, that all, you know, this definition is very symbol uh, laden, drawing comparisons to the Nazis, using the symbols associated with classical anti-Semitism, etc., uh, etc. Et um, by the way, an argument that sort of largely passed Israelis by, while the, while the you know, the British, uh, British Jewish community were very uh, preoccupied. And I think it's very interesting that the, the uh, British Jewish community on this occasion chose actually to pick a fight with the Labour Party about this specific issue and to say, actually, no, it's not OK to claim that Israel, uh, by definition, is racist. Um, that, that's not OK. That counts as uh, that counts as uh, anti-Semitism. So at the same time, you've got sort of the non-Jewish conversation that's happening about uh, that's happening about uh Israel. Um, you also have a Jewish conversation that's happening about Israel. This is just from a quick Google search I did earlier, finding you know half a dozen Jewish organizations talk about how to have a conversation about Israel. We don't talk about having a conversation. No, we need to have the Italy conversation, or we need to have the Australia conversation, or even talking about China or Russia, which which you know they're symbols in many ways, but they're spoken about as real geopolitical issues. Here, there's something very different that's going on about the conversation about Israel. And I think where it comes from historically is that unlike Russia or China or Italy or France or countries that have always been there in some form or another, Israel took swimming against the tide of history to establish. Yes, Zionism was the national liberation movement of the Jewish people. Yes, there were other nationalists, other national liberation movements across Europe. But what was unique about Israel is that whereas the Poles, for example, just needed to, or the Italians, just needed to shrug off the yoke of different empires, invent their own national identities and become a country, in Israel, there had to be, I mean, a very deliberate process of picking yourselves up from Europe, the Middle East, wherever, and physically moving uh, to Israel um, uh, in order to create these uh, facts on the ground. And that meant that Israel didn't just emerge organically. Uh, Israel was the result of an ideological movement. It was the result of an ideological movement that had a question, how do we keep uh, Jews safe in a world where they're facing increasingly violent hostility, uh, but also threats to um, Jewish identity and Jewish continuity. Uh, how do we safeguard our future as a Jewish people? And Zionism was just one answer. There were so many other answers at the beginning of the 20th century. So much so that I think before the Holocaust, it wouldn't have been clear at all that Zionism was going to be um, by far the most successful answer uh, to the Jewish question. There were Jews in Europe who said, yes, we are Jews. Yes, we are a people, uh, but uh, we should express our solidarity with each other through the socialist workers' struggle. And they formed a party called the Bund, the socialist uh, Jewish uh, socialist movement. And they said, that's how we're going to express our national identity. Um, by being socialists in Europe. And there were others who said, actually, no, we're going to express it by we should have Yiddish autonomy in Europe. And there were others who said, actually, no, the solution to the Jewish uh, question is to leave the horrible continent of Europe and just go to the United States where we'll be free and we'll separate our, you know, our religion from our uh, civic identity and we can be fully Americans without any of that baggage. Um, but it meant that Israel, since it was an answer to a question, 
Uh, and it was an answer to a question that was competing with different answers. And it was an answer that I had to fight against, really against the odds in order to succeed. It's always remained a cause. And it's always remained a cause that has been justifying itself, so to speak. But that's not where it gets interesting about the, the conversation about Israel. Um, the, the conversation about Israel is interesting because of how Israel's existence as a faith accompli feeds into the identity of the people who are having the conversation. Because, you know, like it or not, for American Jews, Jews in the diaspora, Israel is not just another country. And even though you as uh, a uh, Jew might not have Israeli citizenship, might not speak Hebrew, um, Israel always ends up becoming a part of the conversation and your identity in terms of how you define yourselves vis-a-vis um, the rest of uh, vis-a-vis the rest of uh, society, you know, is, um, you know, there will be a certain argument, for example, among maybe the left and the progressive parts that say, look, Judaism is, is just a religion. It's a ritual thing. It's like there are different churches, there are synagogues. So we want to worship and, and maintain our prayer services. But this country called Israel doesn't really have um, doesn't really have anything to uh, anything to do with us. Whereas on the other end, there will be people who say, you know, we might not have moved to Israel. We might not have physically gone there, but but there are no two ways about it. We all have cousins there or second cousins there. And we all have a story about someone in the family who went there or nearly went there and ended up uh, ended up in uh, in America. And so as the conversation in America evolves, you know, along the lines of identity politics and, and minority rights and, and minority ethnic identification, you see the question of Israel and the conversation about Israel feeding into that. Um, you know, for example, during the Trump presidency, uh, Netanyahu and Trump were very close, largely because of a confluence of uh, interests and their perspectives on, on how to deal with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, for example. But then for many in America, Israel became a symbol of nationalism, uh, for example, or a threat to democracy. And in, in the same way that they're sort of re- they're reading that argument through the story they're telling themselves about um, uh, the story they're telling themselves about what's going on in America, what's going with uh, what's going on with uh, with uh, with Donald Trump. Um, and so I sense sometimes that within this conversation about Israel, sometimes there is perhaps a, a level of discomfort or an awkwardness um, in trying to, to deal with this question about Israel as this country far, far away that, you know, we're loyal American citizens, yes, but at the same time we have an attachment to. You don't want to call it loyalty, call it an attachment, an affinity to. Um, and that is a very difficult conversation to navigate because it's very different from um, you know, other ethnic identities in uh, America, like the Irish or the Italians, who might still be linked to, um, you know, have, have cultural uh, relations with that country. But they're very different because those cultural relations aren't under threat. There isn't such a f- serious focus on continuity. How do we keep pushing things forward? I don't think the you know, Italian and, uh, and Irish Americans are so obsessed about keeping their Irishness in, 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 the next, uh, in the next generation. And as I said, because Israel interests the rest of the world, as we saw, and the, and the conversation isn't always just about Israel. There's, there's always a subtext. It's about so much more. It keeps coming back into the news and it keeps being something that people uh, feel a need that they have to address and, and interpret through their own identity, the story that they tell themselves. You know, if the story that American Jews tell themselves 
is a story of fitting into the great American melting pot, keeping a sort of cultural identity. But Hanukkah is, you know, it's basically the Jewish version of Christmas and we're all Americans and we all believe in, you know, the great American creed. And this is just, you know, the worship that we have at home. And you know what, actually intermarriage, interfaith marriage, we're cool with that. Um, having this country that comes along and presents a very different vision of what Judaism is, one that's maybe more traditional, uh, definitely more nationalistic, uh, challenges a lot of the assumptions that, that, that uh, you know, Americans or other diaspora groups will have about their own Judaism. So you always have Israel there as, as, as a mirror, both in the way that the West, we said, you know, was always interested in, in Israel, whether it's the real Israel or a made-up Israel to interpret its own story. Israel also feeds into the way that Americans talk about their own values. You know, where do we stand on minority rights, equality, human rights, that's sort of part of the conversation about Israel. Whereas in Israel, if you want to talk about Israel, like there are a million things that are going on. You know, one of the biggest conversations in Israel this week has been about rights for disabled, uh, disabled soldiers and traffic jams. And, and, and these are conversations that are happening in Israel. And yes, there are sort of the big meta questions, but they're slightly different from the meta questions that are being asked. Uh, in the diaspora about what Israel means for us, what sort of relationship we're meant to have, or what conversation we're meant to have uh, about it. Um, and I think I've created what was meant to be sort of a Venn diagram here, but it hasn't come out very uh, successful. It's because Israel is several things. Israel is a land. There is the land of Israel. It includes Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. That is the land of Israel. Israel is a state a state in the sense of it has a bureaucracy, it has its machinery, a prime minister and a president. It's a country. It's a place with its own culture. Israel is a people. We speak of the people of Israel. That's synonymous with uh, Jews. Um, Israel is a religion. Um, you know, it's a slightly archaic way to say the religion of Israel is just another way of saying um, Judaism. I mean, the idea of having Judaism, the word Yahadut, meaning uh, Judaism, is itself something quite new in uh, modern Hebrew. You would speak about, you know, Moreshet Israel, the tradition of Israel. And it's also in many ways an idea, an ideal, um, as a country that uh, was founded with a specific mission, but with so many competing visions as well about what it's meant to be. You know, is this a country that is meant to be basically Vienna on the Mediterranean, that's meant to be sort of a liberal, secular state? Is it a country that is meant to include Jewish values in its laws? Um, is it a country that's just meant to have a, an affinity, a sort of a cultural affinity uh, with, uh, with Israel? What does it represent? What is it there for? Um, and I think that's why, you know, very often uh, people you know, particularly what critical of Israel might talk about um, their, you know, having a relationship with Israel and finding Israel challenging in a way that we don't really talk about other countries, except for maybe America, because, you know, America is also an idea, the idea of the American dream and owning your own, you know, two-story house with a white picket fence and having a nice car and the big, you know, uh, big streets and freedom and civil rights. America is also an idea in, in the same way that, uh, you know, Bangladesh, I don't know what the idea of Bangladesh is. It's a country that has many, many, many more citizens than Israel. I'm sure the Bangladeshis think their country stands for something, exists for a certain reason. Um, but in the world, they're definitely, you know, 
how could it not be this way when Judaism is so built into Western heritage? How could that not stand for something and other people think that, that Israel should mean something? And that all uh, feeds, into the, feeds into the conversation. Uh, so with that, I want to open up to you, either questions you want to put in the chat uh, or just switch your microphones off and uh, ask questions. And we can have a conversation about the conversation about the conversation about Israel. Hello, maybe end the sharing. End the sharing, yes. Benji, do you want to start us off? I'm always cool with the awkward silence on Zoom. But um, I actually thought, if, if Mike, if you're there, if you want to share, as far as I recall, your campus had a thing with the IRA anti-Semitism, and I'm curious if you had any thoughts on that, um, based on what Elon shared on that. Yeah, so it was uh, the wildest two weeks ever experienced when it comes to just defining the basic root of hatred. What, uh, like, how to define hatred that, against a specific group, and um, especially for me as someone who's not Jewish, um, it was tough to have these conversations with my own peers. Um, I just, I, I just want to think about this for a second. Um, what was challenging about it um, was how many of them wanted to take away Israel from the conversation. They wanted to take away uh, what was the Jewish state. What is the Jewish state? Um, and they wanted to take away from that conversation because they wanted to criticize Israel in such a way when, of course, we shouldn't think that Israel is a colonist and a racist state. Um, so um, our student government was voting on the IHRA uh, definition, unfortunately, never passed. Hmm. So the Jewish... Which uh, college was that, Mike? I'm sorry? Which college was that? Uh, City University of New York. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it's the university system, but there's all of us in there, some campuses. And um, I have a question, though. Was it just your downtown campus, or was it, like, all of them? All, it's everyone. So that's so a lot of have, people. So we have our campus government and our university system government. So that represents everyone. So this is the whole university level. Um, but anyway, so uh, some people from different SJPs and the Jewish Law uh, Student Association within CUNY wanted to make their own uh, definition, and that failed. Mm. And it was just, it was a bit, it was, it was just a circus overall, the, the whole experience. And which brings me to my point as, as someone who is not Jewish, how could I help my Jewish peers speak with my own communities about anti-Semitism? Um, wow. Um, that's a very good and uh, difficult question. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, picking up on what was going on in Britain with the Labour Party, this is a debate that's obviously been happening on, on different campuses. And it's really interesting just how much energy people 
especially non-Jews, are expending on um, the question of Israel and how you can talk about Israel. Now, the IRA definition is not perfect. I mean, much of the argument about it was that the examples are not a definitive list of you must not do this. But here are some examples that might, in context, be considered anti-Semitic. Um, uh, so, and, and that I think is what a lot of the, a lot of the debate, um, is about, but, but it's interesting, for example, that you find a lot of the conversation when I was saying, you know, but when people talk about Israel, they're really having a conversation about themselves, uh, rather than, than specifically about Jews, um, that you will hear, for example, you know, minorities have a right to define their own oppression, is a is a is a you know sentence that you often hear in the context of how do we define anti-Semitism? Um, you know, the Jews should be able to define it. Should be able to define it. But apart from the fact that clearly the Jews can't agree among themselves uh, how to define it, because even the people who are opposing this definition include uh, you know quite a number of, of far left or far progressive Jews uh, amongst themselves. Um, that idea, that whole discourse about that, like individual minority should be able to define the oppression against them, is very different from the conversation you've had in Israel. I mean, I don't even know how I would say that in Hebrew because it's just it's not it's not part of Israelis aren't having this argument. Israelis are not having a theoretical argument about what counts as anti-Semitism because I think most most of them think you know we recognize it when we see it, um, and we don't need a, a fine uh, theoretical uh, definition. But maybe also that's also because Israelis say, you know, we don't really need to worry about it on a day-to-day basis because Israel was created so that we can basically tell the anti-Semites to piss off, if you'll pardon my French, um, that we can stick a big middle finger and say, you know, we're fine, we're getting on with our lives, we don't need to bother about, um, about, uh, about um, you know, all your little arguments, which is obviously something that's very different from what's happening in the diaspora, where it really does have a, a huge impact on the Jewish community. How you can help them? Ask your friends. Ask your friends specifically what uh, what they need, what support they could use. Uh, far be it from me, all the way over here, to tell you what what you can do to help. You know, all the specific arguments that are happening on different campuses are all very specific to the individual nature of um, of each campus. Uh, so, uh, as as they say in the West, be a good ally. <laughs> and, and uh, other questions. Mike, I just wanted to say, Mike, are you, you know Aharon Grama, right? The guy who is part of the USS. Uh, Actually, yeah. yeah, no, I was just talking with him a couple of days ago about it, and he was like giving the backstory about it. And it's, it's really crazy the maneuvers yeah, that went wrong. And even, unfortunately, on my campus, um, on Yom HaShoah, uh, someone targeted our Zoom event uh, with sexual images, and uh, unfortunately, with, and it, it's my alma mater too. I'm for my undergraduate studies, and unfortunately, uh, they haven't responded yet. So, okay, it, yeah, it, it's 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 been tough in both in the CUNY system. I gotta say. Okay. Anyone else want to chip in? Question, comment, observation. Um, yeah, Shane. Oh, if you don't mind me going first. Shane. No, sure. Just, like, just switch your microphone off and uh, when you want to speak and just and, and butt in next time. Do, do it right. ready way. Yes, Ethan. Okay, great. Sounds good. Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for coming and talking. I found your presentation really interesting. And the way that we should, um, I suppose, talk about Israel is really current and salient nowadays. I can tell you, at least from my point of view, uh, I'm currently studying in Europe in Maastricht, a uh, little city in the Netherlands. 
but still very politically active. And I've been trying to like reassemble the Jewish community here and notions such as the American campus activity or American campus life of uh, social issues has also kind of spread here. So there's everything that you can find over here uh, in terms of social movements. But um, there is definitely still a thing which um, is problematic, at least for the Jewish community here, um, which is the concept of intersectionality, which I think we've uh, mm. discussed a couple of times before. I suppose most of you are familiar with uh, the concepts. Um, but yeah, with intersectionality, I mean that I've been trying to raise a voice for the Jewish community here, uh, but we always get shut down by external factors or people from the outside, basically always fearing about the inclusion of Israel in there. In fact, uh, a little anecdote, but a while, a week ago or two weeks ago, we had like a little protest, anti-racism protest, and we wanted to show solidarity with the Uyghur community. So we had a banner with a Uyghur symbol and also the Star of David. And we were kindly told to, yeah, well, pardon me again. We were kindly uh, told to piss off in a way because our Star of David um, was counterproductive or how would I say it? Organizers claimed that displaying the Star of David was going to push away left people from the left and Muslim because of its association with Zionism and boom, immediately Israel targeted. So my question overall with all of this in mind, I suppose, is how do you like, do you agree that most of the problems for Jews in terms of intersectionality uh, have to do with the conversation based on Israel? And also, secondly, how do you explain the importance of Israel to other activists in that regard? I hope it's not too broad of a question, but thank you anyway. It is a really broad question. I mean, you could write a whole thesis on that, but um, I'll, 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 I'll try to give my two cents. Um, yes, I mean, there, there, is, there is no way to get around it that Israel has become within you know, the intersectional discourse an issue. Uh, a totem and, uh, and, and a symbol uh, for those who want to stand up to what they regard as nationalism or militarism or colonialism or whatever, they take Israel to represent that, okay? And their beef is not necessarily with individual Jews living in the West who don't associate with that, but, but with Israel and with Jews who do associate with it and are therefore tainted by um, tainted by uh, implication. I mean, it's impossible to run a hypothetical and think, okay, well, if Israel didn't exist, what, what would they be protesting about? But the fact is that Israel has attracted that uh, ire. And a lot of the, the, you know, people tend to have one, very short historical memories, and also uh, two, a very limited number of metaphors and examples that they know how to uh, speak about. You know, we, we talk about appeasement, and then everyone mentions Munich. Um, because, as you know, as if that's the only example from history. And so Israel just happens to be one of these go-to examples that people reach out for. Um, and because it feeds into what I said, you know, so much of the historical baggage uh, about, the, about the question of Israel um, ends up becoming a really powerful, um, ends up becoming a powerful symbol. I mean, I remember when I was at, at uh, when I was at Oxford, we had a, um, there was an attempt to do, uh, have a BDS, um, uh, to get the student union to boycott Israel. And we had to fight very hard to get that shot down. And when I appealed to the uh, woman who was behind it, who actually happened to have been at high school with me, and I asked her, you know, 
we had a conversation. It was clear she didn't really know what she was talking about. I said, "Why are you? Uh, why are you? Uh, why are you pushing for for uh, a boycott of Israel?" And she replied something like, "I'm on the left. It's what we do." Okay, so for her, opposition to Israel was just part of a bundle, a, a package um, that goes with the environment and raising the minimum wage and transgender rights and being against Israel. It's just all part of the same package. I think it'll be interesting to see what the long-term implications are, for example, of the um, argument that was happening in Britain uh, a couple of years ago around Jeremy Corbyn, where, where British society suddenly became very, very aware um, of the problems of dragging Israel into everything. And, you know, left-wing politicians who seem to be obsessed about, uh, seem to be obsessed about Israel. Um, but, uh, but yes, it, it, it sort of intersected with all these other issues and, uh, and was presented as a, as a package deal because that conversation about Israel wasn't just a conversation about Israel. It was a broader, much broader question that they saw themselves as being part of this bigger struggle, if that helps to answer your question at all. Um, any questions? Just switch your mic off and go for it. I have a question. Oh, Shana, you can go first. Oh, sorry, my question was kind of, I, didn't, I don't really want to go back to Ira, but I mean, it's just kind of a problem that I seem to have, which I think you kind of touched upon, but maybe not really a solution for, I guess. But um, the problem, we were we passed Ira on my campus. I go to Northeastern University in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, we, we passed it, but a lot of the struggles we were having were that it felt like SJP was bringing, we don't really have like um, an anti-Israel Jewish group on campus, but it's mainly SJP. And they were bringing like Jewish students to kind of um, talk about how they were also against IRA. And we like we foresaw that. And so we had like a petition that we were circulating and we had like over 300 students like sign the petition. And, and that, I mean, that kind of represents a large number of Jewish students. So that's, that's kind of what we were going on. Um, but I think still it was just really problematic. Cool, Mike. Um, and it was really, and I think it, it worked really well, but I also think that it didn't really um, make as much of an impact as we thought because it, it felt like they were still tokenizing these few Jews that they, that agreed with them. And I just, like, I don't know, how do, how do, how do we kind of combat that? Because it just, and I understand like Jews obviously have a diversity of like opinions and thoughts, obviously, but it just feels like the majority of students at our campus did support IRON. We did pass it and it was fine, but it just felt like that was something that people were really sticking on that. Like, Oh, this one Jewish person is against it. So therefore like we shouldn't do it. And it's just uh, weird. That's really, really interesting you mentioned that because it shows how much of the general conversation about Israel, not even the Jewish conversation about Israel, but the general conversation about Israel is a Jewish conversation about Israel, right? Even the argument that is happening at a campus level is an argument between two groups of Jews being fought through the student body about how do we define Israel, how do we define anti-Semitism? You know, from the one side who say... um, we don't believe in nation states and we definitely don't believe in that nation state. Uh, we're Americans. Judaism for us is nothing more than, I, I'm simplifying slightly, you know, tikkun olam, it's about a better world. It's about social justice. It's about caring for the weak and the oppressed. And I mean, these are Jewish values. You know, Isaiah, Jeremiah didn't stop banging on about them, right? Caring for the weak, caring for the oppressed, uh, caring for refugees, uh, for the poor. Uh, that's what Judaism is. And we are strongly against, um, you know, any forms of uh, nationalism. And so for them, Israel, a country that in order, you know, in order to look after its weak and its poor and, and you know, and its own vulnerable, 
what can you do? It's in a tough neighborhood. It needs to defend itself and, and, and uses means that, uh, that they find uncomfortable. Even the idea of having a, a separate uh, nation state, I think, you know, I, I hate to use the phrase, but, you know, check your privilege because, because the, the Jews who are having this conversation in America are the ones whose grandparents were lucky enough to get on a boat 80 years ago or, or you know, 60 years ago and reach America um, as opposed to Jews who, who weren't and found themselves shoved into a different corner of the, of the, of the Middle East. Um, and, and didn't have the luxury of, of living the American dream and had to interpret their Jewish values very differently. Um, it, but by the way, you find this, for example, when you ask, um, you know, Israelis and, and, and Americans, you know, what, what are Jewish values? Americans are much more likely to say social justice, maybe humor. Um, Israelis, maybe a, a, very, a small minority would say that, that that's sort of a Jewish value, protecting Jewish lives, protecting the Jewish state, Defending like physical defense for each other um, would rank uh, much more highly. So I think it's really interesting you, you mentioned that example that we are seeing with much of the bigger conversation about Israel, different ideological visions about what the Jewish future is being fought out at a national level. Obviously, that is part of Jews being overrepresented in um I said overrepresented, not controlling uh, media, um, uh, law, uh, academia, um, middle class society circles, um, and and caring very viscerally about about what these symbols uh, what these symbols mean. So yes, that's very interesting. That the, the the bigger conversation about Israel is is often just Jews shouting at each other, and and you find even with the example in um in uh, Britain that. Um, you know, several of the Jew, several of the Labour Party members who were expelled for saying nasty things about Jews were themselves Jews. And this is something that wasn't necessarily discussed, that you had people who were sort of getting punished, Jews who were getting punished by the Labour Party for saying things that were being accused of being anti-Semitic by other Jews. I don't think you get this with any other minority group, right? Um, black people or Indians aren't having arguments really in the same way through general society about what it means to be anti-black or anti-Indian or anti-Polish. It doesn't quite happen in the same way. And I, and I don't think you can understand that without looking at, you know, why I took the, the historical look at the beginning, understanding that historical legacy of what Jews and what Israel have meant apart from real Jews and apart from real Israel. And that's just always been part of the Western psyche. Uh, Lindsay, you want, you had a, a question? I do. Um, yeah. Mine's also kind of about Ira because would I really be like a Jewish university student if my campus didn't have issues with Ira? Um, I I attended on purpose um, an anti-Semitic event at my campus that was like two hours of like gross anti-Semitic speech about like anti-Zionism. It's not actually anti-Semitic. Um, I wrote an article about this. Um and I co-wrote it with a Mizrahi friend of mine, I'm Ashkenazi. We wrote it with like the guidance of like three different pro-Israel groups. We we're like, awesome. We have all of our bases covered. Um, we proposed it to the student newspaper and they said, um, you can't allegate anti-Semitism against people. You can like talk about it theoretically. Like if you want to write an article about anti-Semitism existing, that's so cool. But if you point it to a specific organization on campus, that's really not cool. So like, how do I explain to people that anti-Semitism is like a real thing, not a theoretical thing? And same with Israel. It's like the way they were talking about it was like, it kind of exists, but like not here, but it, it very much exists. 
Wow, uh, that's interesting. How do you how do you talk about it? I mean, it's very difficult for me to say without knowing specifically what was said, and I don't know whether your student newspaper wants to, you know, whether they were worried about getting sued um, or or the implications of running um, running something that might be considered to be defamatory. Uh, or, yeah, they uh, said libelous. it was libel, although we did take out all the names of the individuals. So at this point, it was just saying right. that the club chose to host this event. But yes, right. So I don't, I don't know specifically. Um, I don't know what 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 specifically was that. But but uh, but but you raised a very interesting question because you know a lot of these things we're talking about. You know why why is this specifically anti-Semitic? You have to open up this whole big historical debate. And it's sort of, it's there in the back of our minds, and we know it's there. And sort of the history is there, but sometimes to under, to, to explain these things, you have to help on, and people understand how they fit within the broader historical context of uh, how these things are being said, of uh, things that have been said against Jews, of the, of the global struggle against uh, against Israel. Um, so I, I really don't know what to say in terms of practical uh, practical advice um, on that front. Obviously, there's social media. Uh, which uh, will not um, uh, uh, tell you that uh, you can't write something because it might be considered libelous. Obviously, be very careful on what you say about other people and the allegations that uh, the allegations that uh, that you make. Um, and I'm very sorry to hear that you had a, an event on campus that was full of full of anti-Semitic uh, anti-Semitic rhetoric. It's been a little while since I was at university. Maybe I'd forgotten how rough it is. Alone, I was just reminded. Or t- Thomas, you, t- Thomas, you go. I'll, I'll say this afterwards. It's fine. No, I just wanted to ask a similar question. Yeah, uh, but mine is like it's similar, but it comes from somewhere else. It's more like personal. I'm from mm-hmm. Argentina, and uh, like we have a systemic problem with anti-Semitism. Like the government's been always anti-Semitic. We had the two bombings of Amia, which is a central community center, and. Uh, State of Israel Amnesty, there's like a lot of Nazis and we know the history with Argentina. It's complicated. Um, but the thing is, like, it's not just that anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism exists and it's like on a systemic level. It's also the thing, the thing is also that we don't speak about anti-Semitism at all. Like, you don't hear anyone talking about it, not within the Jewish community, not with other organizations. Universities don't really, like, acknowledge their anti-Semitism. And when it comes to Israel, being pro-Palestinian and anti-Israel is a standard and no one questions it, like, almost. So, like, we don't have as much of this as the theory as they have in the U.S. or in Canada. So how do you start, like, this whole conversation? And specifically, I wanted to ask, like, can we use this connection, like, from Israel to Western culture and, like, show how Israel's part of all of us as a way to start a conversation about anti-Semitism? Like, how does the conversation of Israel function as a tool for this purpose? Can it? it's, it's interesting you should say that because part of the reason, of course, that Israel ends up attracting a lot of fire is precisely because it's identified as Western. Perhaps in the Western imagination, Israel is more Western than it actually is. I mean, come to Tel Aviv, you will struggle to find a good smoked salmon bagel. I'm not kidding. You will find plenty of places you can get great falafel, great shawarma. Smoke some of the bagel. It's not. It's not. It's not really a thing here. Uh, Israel is not New York on the map. Um, 
Israel is, I mean, one of the most popular pop songs uh, recently is, uh, you know, the lyrics go, oh, this is not Europe, it's Israel, get used to it. Um, so, you know, in many ways in the Western conversation, Israel is seen as an outpost of the West, something that Israel definitely builds on. Netanyahu's definitely used that in his rhetoric to present Israel as like being the vanguard of the West. In other ways, we're a country where half the Jewish population came from the Arab world and 20% of the population is, uh, is, uh, Arab. Um, and, uh, and so in many ways it, it, it isn't, its culture perhaps isn't as, as Western as, uh, as the West. Um, but what you mentioned about Argentina is very interesting because, I, I mean, I was just reminding me in uh, Northern Ireland, for example, the uh, Protestants, uh, you know, the, the loyalists who regard themselves as British are very strongly pro-Israel. And the Catholic Republicans who want to be part of a united Ireland are very strongly pro-Palestinian. Why? And it's because they're reading their own stories into this, because the Catholics see themselves as being oppressed by a powerful state and as, uh, you know, that was unjustly colonized and uh, suppressing their minority rights. Um, and the Protestants are reacting to that and see themselves as being an outpost of civilization, defending themselves from, you know, fanatical fundamentalist forces. And so I don't really know how that how that fits into Argentina and where exactly that hostility, um, where exactly that hostility comes from. Uh, I'd be interested in hearing from from you because you know, as we said, in all these countries, the conversation they're having about Israel is really a conversation they're having about themselves um, and where they stand. I'd I'd be interested to hear from you where that hostility in Argentina comes from. Like if we're speaking on colonialist like level and like on that speech, I would say that Argentina is very anti-colonialist. First of all, because of our history with Spain and everything that happened, how we were a colony, and we became independent. Which is interesting, so, given that the Argentinians are all the descendants of colonists. But okay, let's think, let's yeah, forget that. Let's have that slide. We're all very European, very Italian, Argentinian. Well, not Argentinian, sorry, Spanish, and like yeah. all European. But still, like we see ourselves as something different, and like like far away from Spain, but it's also not just Spain. Like I think we have a lot of trauma from this is going to sound controversial, but like from us intervention in South America, like in Argentina, mm. they put a dictatorship within us, the Falkland islands war. Like it was Britain who was like, they had control over the islands. And then like Argentina wanted to take the back or territory and like the U S backed, uh, Britain against us. Yeah. It wasn't your territory. They're called the Falklands, not Las Malvinas, but okay. <laughs> I kind of agree. Like, I don't think it's important anymore, but a lot of people are like really, really, really passionate about like, we are, we were a colony. We're independent now and we have to eliminate colonialism, specifically like American mm. colonialism in South America and like British colonialism in the Falklands. And like, they're all attacking us. We should free ourselves. And maybe it's like linked to that, but I don't know. Like they don't really connect. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it ties back to what I was saying about people having very short historical memories and, and very few um, metaphors to cling to that Israel ends up being regarded as a, as a colonial movement. Maybe it's because everything about Jewish history just doesn't fit any of the patterns or laws of history. I mean, it really is in many cases a case unto itself. Um, there is no other example of a nation from antiquity um, scattered that 2000, late, 2000 years later rebuilt a state with the same name, worshipping the same God, speaking the same language. None. I mean, yes, 
there are still people who call themselves Greeks and there are still people who call themselves Chinese, um, largely speaking variations of the same language. But, but there was never that story of having been exiled and then centuries of different imperial regimes and then a deliberate effort to, to move back. I mean, the closest international example I can think of is Liberia, a country in Africa that was founded by former slaves who went, I think, back from America to found uh, a country of uh, free slaves. That's why it's called Liberia. But I mean, that's the closest example you can find in the world of an exile people returning and forming their own, uh, forming their own state. Because, I mean, what happened to other nations in antiquity disappeared. And more recently, other colonized people were also annihilated. I mean, look what happened in America. Look what happened in Australia. Look what happened even in Argentina. The, the colonized people didn't live to tell the tale. And Israel is a story of a colonized people who lived to tell the tale and returned back. And when they went back to their homeland, they found that there were other people living there. Um, and, and that's a story that just doesn't have any parallels in, in international history. And so I think it can be so difficult to wrap your head around um, that the world often ends up appealing to these lazy paradigms of, oh, Israel must be a you know, colonialist state because it happened around the same time as colonialism and most of them came from Europe. So sort of it's all very colonial and then the Palestinians must be, must be the natives. Um, but, uh, you know, how do you challenge that? I don't know. We're, we're dealing with very, very, very deep narratives here. I think um, the more that Israel is normalized, I said, basically, the longer it exists, I mean, I hope at least, the longer it exists, the more normal stories there are about it, the more people are exposed to it as a normal country, the less of an ideological bugbearer it will be. I mean, Israel has never received as much good press as it has in the last month from the fact that it's the first country in the world to be basically fully vaccinated. And coronavirus is now over in Israel. It, it's basically over. And people who want to start planning holidays think that Israel is the first country that's going to going to let them in. Now, obviously, there were arguments about, you know, should they vaccinate the Palestinians and whatever? And, and, and that fed into the, the trends that, that I was talking about. But I can I can only hope that as Israel is normalized and to more people, they have more interactions with it as a normal country, as a holiday destination as a country that's really good at vaccinating people, as opposed to a symbol that has so much historical and religious baggage to it. But clearly there are people who have an interest in playing up those uh, stereotypes. I don't know. I mean, these, these were the stereotype about Israel being colonialist, whatever, something that was fanned by the Soviet Union, by the Arab countries. Maybe as the Arab world begins to move towards peace and normalization with Israel, um, then there will just be fewer vested interests, you know, who have an interest in fueling uh, this sort of conflict and this sort of uh, language about Israel. And we can shift to what I hope will be a more normal uh, conversation. But uh, that might take a long time. <laughs> Benji, how are we doing for time? You tell me. Um, let's take, take one or two more questions. Sounds good. Yeah. I think... Uh Sorry, Avia and Alyssa, I think, and then I had a comment, and then I sure. Well, um, going back to the conversation that Tomas started and that you also touched upon um, in terms of people, like, forgetting where they fit in the historical context, um, I often have these conversations in the context of colonialism also, and what I find most commonly um, 
is just an inability to grasp Jewish peoplehood. Like people mm. just don't understand why the Jews feel connected to each other. Mm-hmm. Like if they, if they do not see Judaism as anything more than a religion, of course it won't make sense to them. Yeah. Um, and that's a really big hurdle I find. I mean, just an example yesterday, um, I'm seeing this guy and I think I'm the first Jew he's ever met, um, <laughs> which leads to like, just like random questions at like inappropriate times sometimes. Um, but like what, what I told him yesterday, he asked what I found most offensive. And I was like, the la- the lack of understanding of Jewish peoplehood is most offensive. And he's like, that's so theoretical. Like, why does that matter? <laughs> I'm like because that's the because that's the basis of Zionism and that's what people have such issues with. Like if you can't understand that, you're not gonna understand anything else. So like that's a huge thing that people just don't understand sometimes. And I don't know. Um You're right. And and partly that's because it just doesn't fit into any of the other models of you know how how history works. And also partly because, you know, let's 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 be realistic. The Zionist mission of taking Jews from Poland and Yemen, Iraq and Argentina, India and America, and saying, who all speak different languages, um, different dress, and saying you are one people, was as much an aspiration, right? Zionism was was as much a nation-building project, one that succeeded remarkably quickly because there was the basis of the common language and the common history and the sense of common identity. Um, but, but there really aren't many other examples of, of a, a nation that survived for so long in exile. We're used now to thinking of nations as being sort of based on states, um, as opposed to nations that sort of exist outside of states and came together in order to form uh, their own state. So I can see why that's very confusing um, because, you know, once you say the Jews are a people, I can understand why that would put, you know, Jews in the diaspora in an uncomfortable position when you ask, okay, what is your nationality? Are you American? Oh, wait, you're, you're Jewish, but then that, that's your national identity, but not American, or you're both American and Jewish. They're both your national identities or how exactly do those fit? How exactly do those fit together? And so obviously, it's much easier for people to say, you know, what I speak English, I don't have family in Israel, I have no plan on living there, to say, no, I'm fully, I'm fully American. That's my national identity. But then, how's that different from peoplehood? We're dealing with a lot of a lot of nuances. And I mean, what is Judaism if not interpretations of interpretations of interpretations of interpretations? And there's just a lot of historical um, baggage and, uh, and and depth there that ends up feeding our conversation about Israel that I can completely understand why it would be very confusing and bewildering for people who just don't come from that world. And you know what? There's no reason for them to understand these nuances. And there's no reason for them to be aware. Um there's no reason for them to be aware of it. So it's, it's interesting that you're having that, that experience to try to explain it because, you know, if you imagine yourself growing up in non-Jewish society in America, there's just no reason that, that, that these things should even be on your, should even be on your radar in the first place. Oh, absolutely. And what it, what it usually comes down to, like regarding colonialism, mm. is that like, I'll tell them, you know, what other country that's like smaller than Connecticut that has 9 million people, like that's 
literally such a small number. Like you have no reason to care about this place. That's so random. Like the reason it's part of like Western discourse is like by definition also a remnant of colonialism and that like really like drives me crazy and isn't it interesting that we're like doing it all in like the context of like fighting against colonialism and like indigenous rights like isn't it interesting then that in the conversation that we have about israel on the one hand we want to tell people you shouldn't care and on the other hand tell them but here's why you should care Right. You notice how we do, are we doing both of those things at the same no, time? And it's also interesting what you just said just now. That's like, we have no reason to expect them to understand these nuances or to expect them to care. Like in order for someone to, but it's so hard when, unless they understand, then they're not yeah. going to the importance of Israel. Yeah. yeah. But as long as they're respectful and willing to learn and where, where you know, where, where, where I'm, I'm disturbed is not that people, are ignorant because I, I don't expect them to know. It's when they're ignorant, but but the question still feeds somehow into their own how they interpret their own identity. Right? Israel Jews should not be a part of your identity. Um, should not be part of how you interpret the world, and yet it is. Let's take one more question. Um. Hi. Uh, sorry, I can't turn my camera on. My Wi-Fi is not great today. Um, sorry. But um, so I have a question about something you kind of touched on earlier, um, which is the question of, you know, the Arab world, because I think we're living in a very kind of weird historical moment that I don't think Mm. anyone really saw coming that as anti-Semitism decreases in the Arab world, you know, like with the Abraham Accords and things like that, we're seeing anti-Semitism increase within the Western world, like in America and Canada, especially. Um, So I was just wondering like how, like why you think we're coming to this moment where the roles have flipped and the Arab world is having better conversations about Israel, whereas America is having worse conversations. I think there's a very different conversations that are being had. It's, it's not that these countries are having the same conversation and they're going in different directions. Let me, let me explain what I mean. Within the Arab world, the countries that we've seen, deepening ties with Israel now have always been way on the periphery of the Arab-Israeli conflict, okay? The United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, have never been at war with Israel. In fact, they weren't even independent countries until, what, the 70s? And they always went along with the Arab world because uh, there were more powerful Arab countries that were anti-Israel, so the Arab League takes a position and you just go along with it, right? It's part of the package deal of what it means to be Arab. And they're discovering that actually um, standing up for the Palestinians isn't serving their interests, that Israel has the keys to a lot of their own development goals um, and having ties with it will serve their interests. That's how we got peace with the UAE and Bahrain, Morocco as well, which was never really hostile to Israel from its own perspective. It was sort of part of going along with the Arab game. Um, Sudan, which had always been peripheral as well, and the countries that actually have the most deep-seated anti-Semitism, like Iraq or Syria 
or Kuwait, right, are still not on the radar for, uh, for, for normalization. So the, the conversation that is happening there, at least at an elite level, because let's remember these are not democratic countries. It's not that the UAE or Morocco suddenly decided to like Israel because they had a vote on it and the pro-Israel parties got elected. Okay, These are leaders who are making decisions about what is good for their country, where they want to expand business ties, and, and they're you know, clearly guessing that public opinion will, will let them get away with it. Um, is very different from the conversation that's happening in the um, in the United States, which seems to be going through its own very weird moment of political polarization, where Israel is a symbol for people both on the right and for the left, um, and it's definitely disturbing uh, to see how it's an issue uh, there and how it feeds into um, the ways that the left and the right in America regard uh, regard each other. But, but sort of the conversation they're, they're having about Israel, about like values, is, is a very theoretical debate that I think is very different from the debate in Middle Eastern countries about whether to back Israel or, or to, to normalize relations with Israel. For them, like it's a cost-benefit analysis. What do we have to bet? What do we have to gain from relations with Israel? business ties, better access to Washington, um, uh, commerce, tech, tourism. And actually, why aren't we being friends with Israel in the first place? Because of the solidarity with the Palestinians? Well, the Saudis are having conversations with Israel. We're both uh, you know, worried for our defense against uh, Iran. So what's the point of continuing this boycott against uh, Israel? Whereas, so it's very real. Whereas perhaps in America, you know, the reason that people can allow themselves to pontificate and have this argument, yes, Israel, no, Israel, is that they don't, it's precisely because they're not experiencing it as a real place with direct implications for America and American interests, but because they sort of take it for granted and, and have that space within which they can have a conversation without, you know, sort of attaching Israel to different things, to different, uh, different causes. If that answers to your question, I can't see you, so I don't know whether you're nodding or shaking your head. Yeah, I am nodding. Thank you. That does. <laughs> um, okay. Um, Benji, do you have something you want to add, maybe? I just wanted to say it's interesting that, um, you know, was it 10, 11 years ago, a loan was supposed to debate um, George Galloway in Oxford. <laughs> and once he found out that a loan had Israeli citizenship because a parents are Israeli, uh, but he grew up in, in the UK. Galloway, who was a pretty infamous MK for his anti-Zionism anti MP, definitely not an MK. Sorry, MP. Thank you. <laughs> my, it's my slip there, right? MP. Um, he walked out. And so the conversations we're having, you know, and so he wouldn't debate alone for the same reason that I think a lot of things we're talking about. It's not what an Israeli is, but what he thinks an Israeli is, or, or you know, you know, um, and at the same time, it's not an old conversation. At least, you know, Elon is a decade older than most of you, you know, he's around my age, right? So when we were in college, right, this was happening, and it's a as Elon presented with the, the statues of the Judean kings, you know, the conversation about Israel is an ongoing conversation um, in the West. And so it's just taking, it seems to me, taking on a, you know, it's taking on a different form. And so it's, uh, it's an age old thing taking a, a modern, you know, modern shape. Um, so I think it was interesting. I was actually curious, 
if you wanted to share, we also, it's not, if it's not necessary for the conversation, we could obviously end it, but I've never, what happened after he left, Galloway left, like, how did you react as that 20 year old student in a way that you know, some of these kids <laughs> here are dealing well, with actual boycotts of people because of their Zionism or their Jewishness or their pro-Israel stances? Like, what did yeah, you so this, was, this was a debate I think eight years ago in Oxford, uh, that was just between me and uh, Galloway. And at uh, one point I used the word we in sort of the abstract sense, but he interrupted me and he, and he said, you said, we, are you Israeli? I said, I mean, it was, a, it, was, it was a weird question. I didn't quite know what it was. I mean, I grew up in the UK. I had an Israeli passport. I said, yes, I am. He said, I've been misled. I don't, uh, I don't, uh, uh, I, I don't debate Israelis. And he got up and he walked out. Um, huge gasp for everyone in the audience. I mean, this was a member of the British Parliament. Um, and I sort of hadn't quite grasped what was going on. And, and, and the audience let me finish my speech. Uh, one of the people who did grasp what was going on was a member of the student press sitting in the audience who got up and tried to chase Galloway. And by the time I got back to my room that night, I already had a message from uh, the Times newspaper asking me for a comment <laughs> because I didn't manage to make the national press by the time I managed to get to my room um, and caused a huge firestorm. I mean, it was in the British, it was in the national press. Uh, I had Sky News come and interview me. Um, it made, there was a, the Times every day has three editorials it was one of the editorials it was the times cartoon the following morning um and uh and uh i even had a friend who went to a comedy club the following week and said that it made its way into one of the jokes that um that was a bizarre experience it was a really bizarre experience but yes proof that you know these are arguments that have been going on since long before you were in college and i'm sure they're going to continue but they are going to evolve. They're going to evolve in very subtle ways that are very difficult to um, uh, very <laughs> very difficult to predict. At least then, I had a lot of support. I think I think at the time, everyone really understood that what he did was completely not on and not acceptable at all. Um, I have a hunch that he planned it and it was premeditated. I can't prove it, uh, but but everyone agreed that his behaviour was completely out of uh, out of order so at least we had pity points there all right it's interesting that people like thought his behavior was unacceptable i feel like that would like get a lot more applause today like a well i mean i was a 21 year old student who was born in britain grew up in britain a year later, I would sign up for the Israeli army, but I hadn't. I'd never lived in Israel, and I was Israeli by virtue of having inherited citizenship from my parents. So to suddenly walk out in the middle of a debate, or near the beginning of a debate, because you essentially discover your opponent's ethnic identity, really, or citizenship status, I think was quite clearly racist. Um, I think people appreciated that if if he'd said, you know, are you Israeli? And I'd said, yes, but I'm an Israeli Arab. My name is Muhammad. He'd have gone, oh, OK. Or if I said, no, I'm Jewish, but I'm not Israeli, then then, then maybe he wouldn't have uh, walked out. But, but you know, people recognize that, that discriminating and I think attempting to humiliate someone 
definitely fair to say that's what he tried to do on the basis of their national uh, identity um, is definitely racist. So I would, I would like to think that if that event, an event like that were to happen again, um, it would be quite obvious uh, to people who the goodies and who the baddies are in that story. Interesting. Similar to, I think, Lindsay's point earlier, I think this was two or three years ago, at UMass Amherst, they invited Linda Sarsour and the guy mm. from, um, what's that band who's anti-Semitic? Oh, Pink Floyd. Roger yeah. Waters. Yeah. yeah, Roger Waters. And then Vijay Prashad is this, like, communist journalist who is mediating the debate. And it was basically just three hours of them on stage talking about how they were not anti-Semitic because they weren't anti-Semitic. Like, that was the extent of their whatever. And I went with my dad and, like, there were a lot of people there and I think a lot of Jews there just to, like, watch what was going on. People were, like, really walking around. Security was very on edge. Like, I didn't know who would walk out, but, like, it was clear that, like, I mean, walkouts are popular these days, I guess. Um but it was just it was just them standing on stage being like we are activists and we're not anti-semitic because we're activists and because activism isn't anti-semitic and that was all it was and like people were standing on their chairs with the you know power symbol they were like really into it it was like a mega church but linda sarsour so bizarre bizarre <laughs> Okay, Benji. All right. Hey, Lon, thank you. Really okay, thank you. And I hope that you will all be able to come and uh, visit Israel soon, as soon as the uh, gates are, of the gates of the country are open. I think the plan is at first to let in organized tour groups. So if you can get yourself birthright or a second birthright trip, would be great to uh, see you uh, this summer. Hopefully you'll all be able to get vaccinated soon. I'm sharing here my, uh, oh, no, I sent that to Benji as a direct message by mistake. Uh, my uh, Twitter handle um, for anyone who wants to stay, uh, anyone who wants to stay in touch, uh, feel free to uh, follow me uh, on Twitter and continue the conversation about the conversation, about the conversation, about the conversation. So on that note, thank you very much and uh, have a great week, everyone. Thank, Thank you. you.